Welcome again to our series on Last Day Events Explained. My name is Norman McNulty, and I'm so glad that you are joining us here on Audioverse for this series of presentations. It's hard to believe we're getting close to the end of these talks, and today is part nine in our 10-part series. And today's presentation is entitled, God's People Delivered. So we're going to have a great presentation going through the deliverance of God's people. Before we do that, I am going to address a question that came in, a very good question that came in from Neil. And the question was brought out that in the last presentation that was just shared, I mentioned that Satan personates Christ after probation closes, but during the presentation where I went through the four stages of the Sunday Law, I suggested that Satan would personate Christ before the death decree during stage three. I'll admit that I made a mistake in the four stages of the Sunday Law by saying that Satan personates Christ before probation closes, because when you look at Ellen White's statement in Great Controversy, page 624, Satan personates Christ after Jacob's time of trouble has already begun, which clearly begins after probation closes. So the most recent presentation was more accurate in stating that Satan personates Christ after probation closes. But if you look at Revelation 16 and the sixth plague specifically, you see that there's three unclean spirits like frogs that appear after the river Euphrates dries up. The river Euphrates represents the source of support for Babylon. Water represents people. It's the Euphrates that supplied the ancient city of Babylon. And as the people begin to turn against Babylon, as the plagues have been pouring out, by the time the sixth plague comes in setting the stage for the Battle of Armageddon, one of the last acts in the drama, or the last or crowning act in the drama, is for Satan to personate Christ to try to shore up the support of those who have been receiving the plague. So, good question, and, you know, I don't always get it right. I don't claim to be infallible. Hopefully that what we've been going through here is giving you a clear picture, though, of the timeline, of the sequence of events. But, yeah, during the four stages of the Sunday Law, I did misspeak by saying that Satan would personate Christ during the third stage of the Sunday Law. This will actually be during the fourth stage of the Sunday Law after probation closes. So, good question. And uh, before we get into the presentation, just a reminder, if you're interested in uh, verse-by-verse study on the book of Daniel, you can get my book on Daniel from Remnant Publications, or you can order a copy from Amazon. It's an e-book. It's a Kindle version that you can get, and you may enjoy that version as well. So either one of those are options for you. Now's a great time to be studying prophecy and to be preparing for the soon coming of Christ. So, having said that, I want to go ahead and offer a word of prayer now as we get into the presentation for today, our presentation number nine, God's People Delivered. Let's go ahead and ask the Lord to guide us through this presentation. So, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to continue to study last day events and as we see the signs around us and we see that Jesus is coming soon I pray that we would be ready and be mindful and we thank you that the promises that as the world comes to an end that 
God's people will be delivered. I pray we would be among that people. Guide us now through this presentation, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I should also mention that today is part nine. Next week we will have part 10 on the second coming, and then we will have an 11th part, which just goes through questions that have come in. And of course, please send in any further questions to contact audioverse.org, and I'll get through as many questions as we can in the 11th presentation. So we are going through the topic of God's people being delivered. And ultimately that deliverance comes at the second coming, but even before the second coming there will be a period, a short period of time where it becomes clear that God's people will have survived the death decree. So part seven, we looked at the death decree, and then part eight last week, last week we looked at Jacob's time of trouble which is the spiritual struggle God's people go through, especially during the Battle of Armageddon. Um, during the sixth plague, although the time of trouble has be, Jacob's time of trouble has begun even before them. And the good news is that deliverance for God's people comes. So let's look at what the Bible says. Starting in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, we've continued to look at this passage, but it really gives a nice sequence for how it all plays out at the end. So in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it starts off with a familiar statement, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble. So Michael stands up. We've already talked about this when probation closes, when there's a death decree. Then we see there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. That's Jacob's time of trouble that we talked about last week. Then it says, And at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. So those who stand through the judgment, those who stand through Jacob's time of trouble, will be delivered. So there will be a deliverance of God's people, those whose names are found written in the book of life, which is a clear evidence that there is an, an investigative judgment and that the end result of the investigative judgment is that God's people will be delivered. There's another corollary passage in the book of Joel, and I would invite you to turn there, Joel chapter 2, talking about the deliverance of God's people. And I have verse 31 on the screen, or verse 32 on the screen, but I'm going to read verse 31 as well. Talking about the end of the world, it says, The sun shall be turned into darkness. That's May 19, 1780, and the moon turned into blood. That's the same day. Before the great and terrible day of the Lord come, and now notice verse 32, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Now this word delivered is the same in Joel 2 as it is um, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. And verse 31 of Joel 2 makes it very clear that this is end of the world language. And so if you look at this passage, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, and the remnant are synonymous with each other. Mount Zion was on the north side of Jerusalem, and it's being compared to being the remnant. And I believe you see those entities at the end of Daniel chapter 11, um, where the tabernacles of the palace from the king of the north are planted between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. The glorious holy mountain represents Mount Zion. You see that in Psalm 48. 
And so Mount Zion symbolizes the remnant or Jerusalem, the 144,000. And Joel 2.32 is basically saying, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. These are the ones who stand through Jacob's time of trouble. Those who are in Mount Zion, these are the 144,000 who will stand on Mount Zion with a lamb. These are those who are in spiritual Jerusalem or the remnant church, those who keep the commandments of God of the testimony of Jesus Christ. They, they are the ones who have called on the name of the Lord and they will be the ones who receive deliverance. Another fascinating passage is found in Isaiah chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. And Isaiah 2, 3, and 4 are clearly prophecies related to the end of time. In Isaiah chapter 2 and chapter 3, you see where the Lord will arise terribly to shake the earth, or to shake terribly the earth. And in Isaiah chapter 4, starting in verse 3, it says, And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. So very similar to Joel 2.32, very similar to Daniel 12, verse 1, with the deliverance of God's people. Those who are in Zion, those who remain in Jerusalem, that's the remnant. Those who are called holy, everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem, that's the ones who have their names found written in the book. Verse 4, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, meaning these are God's people who have had their sins blotted out, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. So there you see the end of the judgment. Verse 5, And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense and there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and for a place of refuge and for a covert from storm and from rain. There you see the deliverance of God's people again where he will shield them from heat and from storm. And those who are left in Zion, those who remain in Jerusalem, they will be the ones who will be, who will be called holy. They will be written among the living in Jerusalem. These are the people that we want to be, friends. We want to be found written in the book when Michael stands up. We want to be the ones who have called on the name of the Lord. We want to be accounted as being Mount Zion, Jerusalem, or the remnant. We want to be among those written among the living in Jerusalem those who are called holy. And so these are the ones that are going to be delivered. Now I'm going to read some statements from Ellen White here to paint a clearer picture about the deliverance of God's people. And this first statement is from Early Writings, page 282. And here Ellen White says, I saw the saints leaving the cities and villages and associating together in companies and living in the most solitary places. Angels provided them food and water while the wicked were suffering from hunger and thirst. So during the seven last plagues, the wicked are suffering from hunger and thirst and the righteous, the saints, are associating together in companies in the most solitary places, and angels are providing us food and water. Now, here's a very interesting statement from Maranatha, page 270. And this is very fascinating to see how God's people will be brought together and protected during Jacob's time of trouble after probation closes. Notice what Ellen White says, During the night, a very impressive scene passed before me. There seemed to be great confusion and the conflict of armies. A messenger from the Lord stood before me and said, 
Call your household, I will lead you, follow me. He led me down a dark passage through a forest, then through the clefts of mountains, and said, Here you are safe. There were others who had been led to this retreat. The heavenly messenger said, The time of trouble has come as a thief in the night. As the Lord warned you, it would come. Here's the amazing thing. During the time of trouble, when we are fleeing to the mountains, angels will lead us to safe places where they have led other saints, other righteous people, and we will be given food and water. And while the wicked are suffering from hunger and thirst, our bread will be given to us, our water will be sure. And isn't it a nice thought and promise to realize that God will lead us to other righteous people, perhaps to our close and dear friends, where we will have associates that we can encourage each other during this time, even though it seems like things look bleak. And so I really like that statement from Maranatha, page 270, that angels will lead us through dark passages, through forests, through the clefts of the mountains, to safe places where others will be located who are also righteous. You know, there's some parallels to the time of Queen Esther and to the plight of God's people who faced the death decree. Just as Haman moved upon the king, um, Ahasuerus, who didn't realize exactly what was happening, the king moved upon him to declare a death decree against the Jews. And thankfully, God worked in a marvelous way to deliver the Jews through Queen Esther and Mordecai. He's going to work in a similar way on our behalf. And there's some statements from Ellen White about this. This is found in Prophets and Kings, starting on page 605. The decree that will finally go forth against the remnant people of God will be very similar to that issued by Ahasuerus against the Jews. Today the enemies of the true church see in the little company keeping the Sabbath commandment a Mordecai at the gate. The reverence of God's people for his law is a constant rebuke to those who have cast off the fear of the Lord and are trampling on his Sabbath. The quote continues, Satan will arouse indignation against the minority who refuse to accept popular customs and traditions. Men of position and reputation will join with the lawless and the vile to take counsel against the people of God. Wealth, genius, education will combine to cover them with contempt. Persecuting rulers, ministers, and church members will conspire against them with voice and pen. By boasts, threats, and ridicule, they will seek to overthrow their faith. By false representations and angry appeals, men will stir up the passions of the people. Not having a thus saith the scriptures to bring against the advocates of the Bible Sabbath, they will resort to oppressive enactments to supply the lack. To secure popularity and patronage, legislators will yield to the demand for Sunday laws, but those who fear God cannot accept an institution that violates a precept of the Decalogue. Now notice this. On this battlefield will be fought the last great conflict in the controversy between truth and error. And we are not left in doubt as to the issue. Today, as in the days of Esther and Mordecai, the Lord will vindicate his truth and his people. So just as Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people were delivered in the time of Ahasuerus, who was also known as Xerxes, God's people will be delivered from the death decree at the end of the world. So we have the promise of deliverance. We don't need to be worried about whether or not God's people will prevail at the end um, once Jacob's time of trouble comes. So, 
Let's look at some further statements. Now, there's a whole chapter in the Great Controversy entitled God's People Delivered. It's based on Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. This is Great Controversy 635. When the protection of human law shall be withdrawn from those who honor the law of God, there will be in different lands a simultaneous movement for their destruction. As the time appointed in the decree draws near, the people will conspire to root out the hated sect. It will be determined to strike in one night a decisive blow, which shall utterly silence the voice of dissent and reproof. So it will look as if we will be wiped out quickly and decisively. Two paragraphs later, Ellen White says, With shouts of triumph, jeering, and imprecation, throngs of evil men are about to rush upon their prey when, lo, a dense blackness, deeper than the darkness of the night, falls, falls upon the earth. Then a rainbow shining with a glory from the throne of God spans the heavens and seems to encircle each praying company. The angry multitudes are suddenly arrested. Their mocking cries die away. The objects of their murderous rage are forgotten. With fearful forebodings, they gaze upon the symbol of God's covenant and long to be shielded from its overpowering darkness. So just when it seems as if God's people are going to be wiped off the face of the map, there's a death decree, the date has been set, and the wicked are moving upon God's people to destroy us, then a dense blackness will enshroud them and they will not be able to move forward in destroying God's people. By the people of God, a voice clear and melodious is heard saying, Look up! And lifting their eyes to the heavens, they behold the bow of promise. So for us, this is a clear, melodious voice that is like music to our ears, and we see the bow of promise. The black, angry clouds that cover the firmament are parted, and like Stephen, they look up steadfastly into heaven and see the glory of God and the Son of Man seated upon his throne. In his divine form, they discern the marks of his humiliation, and from his lips they hear the request presented before his Father and the holy angels, I will, that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. So we know this promise from John 17. Jesus says to his Father, Please let those whom you have given me be with me where I am. He's saying, It's time for me to come to this earth and take my people home. Just when it seemed as if God's people would be wiped off the face of the earth, Jesus says to his Father, Let me bring them back. And God's people, we will hear him say these very words. Again, a voice musical and triumphant is heard saying, They come, they come, holy, harmless, and undefiled. They have kept the word of my patience. They shall walk among the angels. And the pale, quivering lips of those who have held fast their faith utter a shout of victory. So this will be a moment of triumph and victory. Just when the wicked are about to wipe us off the map and to destroy us, then we hear this voice from heaven saying that we are being delivered. And what a glorious moment that's going to be. Now the statement continues, and these are things that we don't often hear um, discussed explicitly, but this is spelled out very clearly in the book Great Controversy with God's people being delivered. It is at midnight that God manifests his power for the deliverance of his people. The sun appears shining in its strength. 
Signs and wonders follow in quick succession. The wicked look with terror and amazement upon the scenes, while the righteous behold with solemn joy the tokens of their deliverance. Everything in nature seems turned out of its course. The streams cease to flow. Dark, heavy clouds come up and clash against each other. In the midst of the angry heavens is one clear space of indescribable glory. Whence comes the voice of God like the sound of many waters saying, It is done. So, God's people see the signs and wonders. The wicked are looking with terror and amazement upon the scene. They realize that they are on the wrong side. The streams cease to flow. There's dark, heavy clouds clashing against each other. And then we hear this voice from heaven saying, It is done. And the next paragraph continues this quote from Revelation 16. That voice shakes the heavens and the earth. There is a mighty earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth so mighty an earthquake and so great. The firmament appears to open and shut. The glory from the throne of God seems flashing through. The mountains shake like a reed in the wind, and ragged rocks are scattered on every side. There is a roar as of a coming tempest. The sea is lashed into fury. There is heard the shriek of a hurricane like the voice of demons upon a mission of destruction. The whole earth heaves and swells like the waves of the sea. Its surface is breaking up. Its very foundations seem to be giving way. So here you see just this terrible scene for the wicked as they see the mountains shaking like a reed in the wind, the ragged rocks scattering on every side, and then the shriek of a hurricane like the voice of demons. Now, notice Ellen White has been quoting from Revelation 16, um, starting in verse 16, and she goes on. In verse 17, she goes on, and here in this next page, um, she goes all the way through verse 21 of Revelation 16, which is the seventh plague. And notice the statement, mountain chains are sinking, inhabited islands disappear. The seaports that have become like Sodom for wickedness are swallowed up by the angry waters. Babylon the great has come in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Great hailstones, every one about the weight of a talent, are doing their work of destruction. The proudest cities of the earth are laid low. The lordly palaces upon which the world's great men have lavished their wealth in order to glorify themselves are crumbling to ruin before their eyes. Prison walls are rent asunder, and God's people who have been held in bondage for their faith are set free. So here you see the cities of this earth. The seaports that are like Sodom will be destroyed. Babylon will be destroyed and great hailstones are poured out. And what we see here very clearly is the language of the seventh plague of the seven last plagues. This is the end of the world. The sixth plague was the drying up of the river Euphrates and the three unclean spirits, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. So you have the papacy, apostate Protestantism, and spiritualism uniting. Presumably this is when Satan will personate Christ just before the seventh plague pours out. So the sixth plague happens to basically set a date for a death decree. Satan personates Christ. And then the wicked move upon the righteous to destroy them. And then the seventh plague is poured out where we see all of these things, the great earthquake, the hail about the weight of a talent falling upon the wicked. And so when the seventh plague comes, 
this is when the deliverance of God's people takes place. God's people are delivered during the seventh plague of the seven last plagues. Up until the seventh plague, it looks pretty bleak for God's people, even though they're not receiving the plagues, the wicked are receiving the plagues. But then in the sixth plague, the battle of Armageddon begins, and the three unclean spirits like frogs move upon the righteous, and it seems as if God's people are going to be wiped off the face of the earth, but then it will be at midnight that God's people are delivered, the great earthquake comes, the wicked cities of the earth begin to be destroyed, um, hail about the weight of a talent begins to be poured upon the wicked, there's this dense blackness, there's the shrieks of hurricanes, all sorts of things are happening that will be awesome to behold and for the righteous who live through that time i pray it will be us we will see these things happen and we will hear god saying that we have been delivered and so notice this next statement great controversy 637 graves are opened and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt so ellen white's continuing the sequence from daniel chapter 12 verse 1 and into verse 2 here you see the special resurrection being described so that some are raised to everlasting life some to shame and everlasting contempt this is not the general resurrection notice the next sentence all who have died in the faith of the third angel's message come forth from the tomb glorified to hear God's covenant of peace with those who have kept his law. And then going on, it says, They also which pierced him, those that mocked and derided Christ's dying agonies and the most violent opposers of his truth and his people are raised to behold him in his glory and to see the honor placed upon the loyal and obedient. So this is a beautiful promise. Those who die in the faith of the third angel's message. This is from 1844 to the second coming. Now, this is not necessarily all the righteous who have died since 1844. There are many righteous who never accepted the Sabbath and these truths who weren't made aware of them and lived up to all the light that they had. But those specifically, these are Seventh-day Adventists who believed in the third angel's message and proclaimed the third angel's message and did the work of the third angel's message. I'm thinking of like the pioneers, James and Ellen White, Joseph Bates, and the other righteous pioneers and many of the other giants of our faith who have been laid to rest before the coming of Jesus. These will be resurrected just before Jesus Jesus comes back so that they can see Jesus coming in the clouds. Now, the the wonderful promise for us is if we are laid to rest before Jesus comes back, we will be resurrected as if we were alive when Jesus came. Now, we didn't live through Jacob's time of trouble, but we will be resurrected as if we are alive when Jesus comes, and we will be. We will be resurrected. We will be alive when he comes, and we won't be part of the general resurrection of the righteous when Jesus returns. It will be a special resurrection. But I still hope that those of us, myself included, who are listening to this presentation will be part of the 144,000 who will not taste death. But we certainly can expect James and Ellen White and the faithful pioneers um, to be part of this special resurrection. Not only will it be the righteous who will be resurrected, it will also be those who pierced Christ. Remember Jesus said to, to Caiaphas that he would see Christ seated at the right hand of God coming in with power and glory. And we also see some of the most wicked oppressors of God's people. You have to think some of the popes will be there and many uh, others who were persecutors of God's people. So there is a special resurrection
And then the next paragraph, thick clouds still cover the sky, yet the sun now and then breaks through, appearing like the avenging eye of Jehovah. Fierce lightnings leap from the heavens, enveloping the earth in a sheet of flame. Above the terrific roar of thunder, voices mysterious and awful declare the doom of the wicked. The words spoken are not comprehended by all. Now, but listen to this. But they are distinctly understood by the false teachers. Those who a little before were so reckless, so boastful and defiant, so exultant in their cruelty to God's commandment keeping people are now overwhelmed with consternation and shuddering and fear. Their wails are heard above the sound of the elements. Demons acknowledge the deity of Christ and tremble before his power while men are supplicating for mercy and groveling in abject terror. Listen, I would not want to be a false teacher. And I'll say this, sometimes it's not always popular to give the truth as it is in Jesus. Sometimes you lose friends in this life, on this earth, for sharing what the Bible teaches about standards and diet and adornment and dress and the end-time message of the soon coming of Jesus. Sometimes you lose friends for that. Now, we want to give it in a spirit-filled, grace-filled, Christ-like manner as we share these truths. But even when you do that, you lose friends. And there are false teachers who are out there who are giving messages that are patting people on the back, yes, even in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, for living a Laodicean, lukewarm lifestyle that is preparing many Seventh-day Adventists to receive the mark of the beast. And I do not want to be a false teacher. I want to give the truth as it is in Jesus, because when the final crisis hits and when the seventh plague is being poured out just before Jesus returns, these false teachers will reap the fruit of their false teachings. And so don't go to the false teachers. Don't be a false teacher. Follow Jesus completely and listen to the truth as it is in Jesus from inspiration. And then we skip ahead a few pages, the Great Controversy, page 640. The voice of God is heard from heaven, declaring the day and hour of Jesus' coming and delivering the everlasting covenant to his people. What a great moment that's going to be. So those who experience the special resurrection will even hear this part where the day and hour of the coming of Christ is declared. And we want to be there for that moment. Like peals of loudest thunder, his words roll through the earth. The Israel of God stand listening with their eyes fixed upward. Their countenances are lighted up with his glory and shine as did the face of Moses when he came down from Sinai. The wicked cannot look upon them, and when the blessing is pronounced on those who have honored God by keeping his Sabbath holy, there is a mighty shout of victory. And what a shout of victory that's going to be. May we all give that shout shout. We want to see Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven. Soon there appears in the east a small black cloud about half the size of a man's hand. It is the cloud which surrounds the Savior and which seems in the distance to be shrouded in darkness. The people of God know this to be the sign of the Son of Man. In solemn silence they gaze upon it as it draws nearer the earth, becoming lighter and more glorious, until it is a great white cloud, its base a glory like consuming fire. 
Father, and above it the rainbow of the covenant. Jesus rides forth as a mighty conqueror. Friends, this is what we are living for as Seventh-day Adventists. This is the moment we are waiting for, to see that small cloud about the size of a man's hand become bigger and bigger until it becomes a great white cloud and we see Jesus ride forth as a mighty conqueror. May we all live to see that day where we are delivered and Jesus comes as our deliverer. Friends, there's nothing in this earth that is worth missing out for that moment. There's no pain that you have gone through that is worth that is worth missing that moment for. There is no disappointment or frustration in the church that is worth turning your back on God over. Friends, Jesus loves us and he is coming for us to deliver us. And no matter how hard the time of trouble is going to be, it will all pale in insignificance to the moment of deliverance that will come when Jesus comes for us in the clouds of heaven. And I want to close by reading Isaiah chapter 25, verse 9. This is a verse that we all know well. And this is going to be the cry of our heart when Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven. And the Bible says, And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Notice we say of Jesus, this is our God. There are some anti-Trinitarians that try to make it sound as if Jesus is not truly God. No, he is our God, and he is coming for us, and he will save us. And the second coming delivers us as God's people from the wicked who have come to try to destroy us, and it delivers us from this world of sin. You know, next week we are going to do an entire presentation on the second coming, but clearly the deliverance of God's people takes place finally, fully, and completely when Jesus appears in the clouds of heaven to take us off this planet. And before we know it, when Jesus comes, we'll see the graves opened and those who have been torn from us in death those who have lived righteous lives in the ages past will come out of the graves and in the blink of an eye, our feet will be coming off of the earth and we will be ascending into heaven off of this planet to ever be with the Lord. And friends, we want to be there for that day. We want to be there for that moment. Whatever hardships you are going through right now, whatever challenges you are going through right now, the Lord is allowing that to be in your life and for you to be having that experience to refine you and to purify you and to help you to be ready for the moment when he returns in the clouds of heaven. And as that passage in Isaiah 4 says, he's going to wash away the filth from the daughters of Zion. And the reality is there is a lot of filth in the church right now. There needs to be a purging of the sins of God's people in preparation for the coming of Christ. And so we're going to talk about that next week when we talk about the second coming. That, yes, we have a message of the imminent return. Yes, we see this pandemic and we see the civil unrest. But there are reasons why Jesus has not yet returned. And we are going to address that next week. Because Adventists have been proclaiming the soon coming of Jesus since 1844 and on since then. The pioneers have proclaimed it. And after 
after the pioneers were laid to rest, the next generation of Adventists have proclaimed it, and each succeeding generation has been proclaiming that Jesus is coming soon. And there are some in the church today who are almost yawning through this pandemic and through this crisis, saying there's always been crises, there's always been issues, there's earthquakes, there's wars, there's rumors of war, and this pandemic will come, this pandemic will go, but, you know, don't expect Jesus to come anytime soon. And yet many of us see in the signs around us the clear signs of the soon return of Jesus. And it tells me that God's people are be, are becoming closer and closer to being ready for that time. And so we want to be ready. And if there's anything in our lives, any filth in our lives that needs to be washed away, any sins in our lives that need to be removed, now is that time. We want to be among those who will be delivered, whose names will be found written in the book when Michael stands up and when he comes to deliver his people. So that's my appeal to you. May we be among that people who are found ready when Jesus comes. And next week, we will devote an entire presentation to the second coming of Jesus. That's what we're waiting for, a Seventh-day Adventist. So let's close this presentation with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that Jesus is coming to deliver us. And even though the seven last plagues will have been falling and there's a death decree and the wicked will rush upon the righteous, we thank you that there will be a deliverance of God's people when it's all said and done. And that someday soon we can say, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. May each one of us be among that number. May we be found faithful and may Jesus come soon. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and God bless you and we'll see you next week. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.